Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, episode 93. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Alistair Stewart. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned into the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show to pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we go full $6 million man on this thing, just <laughs> without the polyester. We pull stuff apart, we talk about what works, we talk about what doesn't, we make suggestions. All of those suggestions are as wide spectrum as you can imagine. Nothing is off the table here, apart from, by the time the episode is finished, a story that is bigger, stronger, faster, and maybe, just maybe, makes that weird noise as it runs. <laughs> Literary gold has never been so geeky. <laughs> I swear to God, every time you come on the show, I think I need, I need it, I need a new soundtrack. I need a new theme song. And it's like, do 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 do. We're out there. We're out there. Al Stewart, evil genius of the Escape Artist podcasts, man of words, writer of game supplements, fiction, and fabulosity across Tay interwebs. My friend, glad to have you back here in the virtual studios by my side for this workshop episode. Dude, I am pumped. Me too, Dave. Thanks so much for having me back. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's always a delight to have you. And let's let let's just get that delight rolling. Let's just roll that bad boy out there. Let's bring back our guest host, dear friends from a fabulous 20 minutes with that still is echoing across the potosphere even as we speak, reverberating with fabulous ideas, insights, and inspirations. Please welcome back to the big chair here at the round table, David Nickel. Uh David. The, the, the conversation of, of seven days ago was fabulous and, and still echoes in my brain and I'm sure in our listeners' brains as well. But I got to tell you, I'm seriously stoked to get down to some brainstorming with you, sir. Thanks for coming back. Well, you're very welcome and thank you for having me back. Absolutely. Well, you, you did good on the 20 minutes with. We said, sure. Yeah, we'll bring Nickel back. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Dave. License expired. The unauthorized James Bond anthology just hit shelves this year uh, uh, and and features an incredible cast of authors uh, expanding on the mythology of the Bond universe. It's it's exceptional and it's making me want to move to Canada because that's the only damn place we can get it. Um, but I know that's not the end of the awesomeness that is going to be unfolding before you. So if you would be so kind, uh, uh, share with our listeners with you, if you will, uh, what's coming up in the world of David well, Nickel? Immediately what's coming up is, uh, is a short story that is going to be appearing on Tor.com. Uh, that'll be going live on January the 20th. Uh, it's called The Caretakers. Uh, it, was, uh, it was edited by... Um, by Ellen Datlow and has a, a terrifying cover illustration by, uh, by a cat named Greg Ruth, who, no, I, that, that really, I, I, I saw that at work. It came online. I really didn't do any work after that. I just stared at it. Um, <laughs> it was late in the day for my employer, but, I, but nonetheless, uh, it, um, so that's coming up on the 20th. I'm at work on a sequel to my to my first uh, my first solo novel Utopia that's called Volk and hopefully that will be coming out in um in 2017. Um awesome. it, it was supposed to come out in 2016 but then the Bond anthology came up and that took a lot of my my energy. Sure. Um and um still available is my collection Knife Fight and Other Struggles uh which has uh Alongside it, an, an extraordinary audio adaptation uh, <laughs> on Tootpod, uh, very, very uh, ably narrated by uh, by Dave Robinson. Here. <laughs> You're a gentleman, <laughs> sir. Thank you for the plug. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Hey, do you do conventions, Dave? Do you go to uh, horror cons or sci-fi fantasy cons? I do. Uh, I'm. I'm expect. I, I don't have my schedule for uh, for next year all uh, all firmed up. Uh, I went to a great great many of them this year, and uh, I know I'll, I'll be at Ad Astra in Toronto uh, this this spring. Okay. Um, and uh, and beyond that, we'll we'll just have to see. And and I assume you announce those uh, appearances and and events on your website. I do. I uh, my website. Uh, it's a. Uh, 
It's a Google site. The, the best way to find it is to look for the Devil's Exercise Yard. That's my. Uh, that's the name of my blog and my website. <laughs> and, and, Oddly enough, no, no one else has has, has picked that title. Uh, astonishing. I, I would have thought there would have been great competition for that. And and friends, do check that out because. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the lead page is very much an introduction into the work we're going to be doing here at the Devil's Workyard. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Very cool. Al, what about you, man? What do you got coming up? I know there's 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 fabulosity on the horizon for you as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Escape Pod, Pseudopod, and Podcastle continue to churn out uh, fantastic stories week on week. Um, and just as an aside, the adaptation of Knife Fight that you narrated and that, that David wrote, that's legitimately one of my favorite stories of all time. God, uh, yes. So stories like that are one of the reasons why I love my job. That was so much fun to do. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so we much. are rolling Cast of Wonders, which is the YA show hosted by Marguerite Kenner into the family later on in 2016. And we are continuing to roll out Mothership Zeta, which is our quarterly digital magazine. And that's edited by Mo Lafferty who is you know, a titan in podcasting. Of course. Uh, and ably supported by the fantastic Karen Bovenmeyer and Sunil Patel. And what you get with that four times a year is some excellent new fiction, new nonfiction, and a very light seasoning of text versions of stories which we've already run on the show. And a year's worth of subscription to Mothership's Eater is 10 bucks. So it's... Uh, the, the the way I tend to describe it is this is a deal so ridiculous. If I didn't own the company, I would go for it. <laughs> um, the other stuff I've got, I've actually just done half an audiobook anthology for the first time. Holy uh, crap! There's a, yeah, there's a fantastic publishing company over here called Ghostwoods, Ghostwoods Books who did a really, really good uh, Lovecraftian anthology called Cthulhu Lives, which equally split the runtime between English authors and American and Canadian authors. And John Repian, who's an amazingly talented comic writer, is a good friend of mine, and he has a story in there, a story which kicked my ass when I narrated it. <laughs> Seriously. I had this, the, the, I've never, ha never before been in a situation, because it's all done, his story is all done in emails, between him and another author. Ah. I've never been, a, never been in a position before where I've had to email an author and go, do you want me to impersonate you? <laughs> Which was very odd. But I, I did half that. That's available now through Bandcamp. And it was so much fun. It was, it's just a ridiculously smart, tight collection of horror stories. Uh, and I'm delighted uh, to hear that you're getting into that zone, Al. You've got a great narrative tone and a great narrative voice uh, uh, when, you, when you wax into the microphone. So that's very cool, man. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping this is not the last time I do it because I had a lot of fun. Oh, excellent. And what about conventions? I know there's a few of those on your radar. Oh, um, in theory, yeah, there's one or two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we are hoping to get out to FantasyCon, which is one of the big U UK ones towards the end of the year, and Nine Worlds, which is the um, excellent kind of nine worlds is, is kind of a group of really small conventions flying in close formation and happening at the same time. It's, it's the best con in the UK and <laughs> we're hoping that to, to get out to that Worldcon We're not too sure about this year. Uh, but, and all the kind of when we're going to be in the States and where stuff is one of the things which we get nailed down in January, but I'm sure we'll be around. Excellent. Outstanding. And all of this will be on manofwords.com. Yes. Or oh, alistairstewart.com. Yes. 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 yes, yes. Alistairstewart.com. Outstanding. Well, friends, there you go. Dave, Al, all of this will get into the liner notes. I will make sure that there are numerous opportunities for, for the listeners to, to make with the clickety-click and, and follow up on all of the fabulosity that's rolling out in your lives in the months and years to come. But here's what I'd like to do right now. Right now, I'd like to pause. And, and give a little podcast airtime to, to a fabulous ebook, another podcast, a Kickstarter. There's so much going on right now. And, and we are committed here at the Roundtable to open all doors of fabulosity to our listeners. Uh, so we'll take a break for that. But when we come back, Dave, Al, I'd like to brainstorm a story with you. What do you say? Hell yeah. Down with that, sure. Mr. Oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Well, friends, don't you go anywhere. We will be right back. My name is Justin McCumber. I'm the creator and one of the co-hosts for the Dead Robots Society podcast. Every week we discuss a variety of topics that are fundamental to the craft of writing. From the differences between tone and theme to world building to how to create compelling antagonists. 
Along with the roundtable discussions, we've also had the pleasure of interviewing published authors, television writers, podcast luminaries, publishing house founders, and magazine editors. We're dedicated to our listeners, and we work hard to pack our episodes with as much quality education and entertainment as possible. We never stop encouraging ourselves and our listeners to always be writing and to always be improving. The promised land of publication is our goal, and we know that together we can achieve it. If we can also have a good laugh along the way, all the better. You can find us online at www.deadrobotssociety.com. At our website, you'll find show notes, links to our personal sites, our email address, and direct download links to our episodes. You'll also find a link to our forums where we've created a private critique group so that you can safely post your work and get comments and suggestions from us as well as our listeners. All we ask is that you participate by critiquing in return. So come to our site, subscribe to our show, and join us. You can also find us at iTunes. Just search for Dead Robots and we'll be there. After that, get writing. We are... Welcome back, dear friends, and now we get down to the reason why you're here and the reason why we're here, the story brainstorm. And that doesn't happen without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer stepping up and setting the table for our brainstorming feast. And dear friends, our guest writer for this episode is a father of three fantastic girls who lives outside Ottawa. Canada. He married a lovely French-Canadian woman who constantly mocks him for the Parisian French he learned from a high school teacher with a Scottish brogue. <laughs> it just boggles my mind. <laughs> Parlez-vous Francais? What <laughs> man? He he has just started his journey into writing and will show his kids that if they set their mind to something new, they can achieve it through hard work and dedication. And he's walking the talk, dear friends, jumping in on the roundtable as it is right now. So please, dear friends, welcome to the writer's chair here at the roundtable, Robert Lewis. Rob, dude, <laughs> it is never easy to step into this 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 virtual studio and offer up your baby for for six million dollar scrutiny and bionicization. <laughs> so I, I hats off to you, man. Kudos. Glad to have you on the show, man. Thank you. Happy to be here. And I'm putting my child here in the hands of three very skilled surgeons. So I'm quite capable. <laughs> I'm quite capable of that. I'm happy to be here. So thank you again. Skilled, but perhaps a bit deranged. So I, I, I have. I would go with enthusiastic over deranged. <laughs> Certainly a much more marketable phrase, I think. Yes, enthusiastic <laughs> surgeons. Uh, uh, well, we will do our absolute best to make sure that uh, literary gold abounds as we move forward. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's dive into this. Rob, you know how this works. We give you five to eight minutes. You introduce us to the story, give us a tagline, some of the themes that you want to explore, introduce us to the world and the characters, give us some set pieces, some story tent poles of narrative, and that will start us off on an epic, epic brainstorm of of mythic proportions. I'm going to stop talking now and get out of the way. Sir, the mic is all yours. Okay, thank you. Uh, My story is a weird western tentatively called Hell Breaks Loose in Fortune's Pass. The tagline is, a grieving druid must conquer her inner demons in time to prevent a deranged miner and his archdemon master from turning a Nevada mining town into the first demonic foothold in North America. The theme of the story is the struggle to forgive oneself and the transformation that occurs throughout that process. The story takes place on an alternate earth in the late 1860s. The earth is hollow and its core is inhabited by evil spirits that occasionally cross to our side. Demons are the physical manifestation of these forms on our side. Awen is a magical energy that can be channeled by a very small number of people, and a tiny percentage of those channelers are strong enough to be able to weaponize Awen. Awen and demons are acknowledged in most of the world, but in North America they are thought to be old world legends or native superstitions. The Council of Four Pillars is an association of religions that purges the world of demons and destroys channelers. Secretly, each religion separately tries to recruit channelers to bolster their power within the council, and they will go to exceptional lengths to recruit or kill a channeler strong enough to weaponize Awen. 
The story takes place in Fortunes Pass, Nevada, a mining town along the Sierra Nevada mountains. Mining is focused primarily on demon hearts, which are geode-like rocks that generate vast amounts of heat energy when the crystals inside are exposed to oxygen. The main protagonist is Aryanwan, or Ari, who is a confident and gentle-natured druid and a very skilled Awan channeler. Ari was the cunning woman in her village in Wales at the remarkably young age of 16 because of her unusually strong channeling ability and her vast herbalism skills. Ari was targeted by a demon hunter sent by the council for pillars. Ari and the demon hunter fell in love and had a son together. While protecting her lover from a combined attack by his former council colleagues and a demon, she accidentally killed her son with her channeling. Ari's life was shattered. She is terrified that the danger that channeling poses to the people she loves. Ari was a nurturer and a cultivator of both people and plants and wants to feel vital and valuable again. Ari is supported by her lover Marv. Marv was trained to be a demon hunter for the council since childhood. Violence is almost always an option for Marv, and his ability to assess and mitigate threats made him one of the council's best demon hunters. When he met Ari, he saw her as a caring, loving woman, and not the evil witch the council claimed her to be. Marv quit the council to be with Ari, and is now afraid his sacrifice for love was in vain because Ari is so emotionally damaged that she may never be able to love again. Marv gets frustrated because Ari rejects his help and doesn't seem to be helping herself. Unable to protect or help his loved ones, Marv is turning into a single-minded, violent destroyer of wrongdoers. Frank and Jenny are a young couple in Fortune's past. They look up to Ari and Marv as parental figures and have built a small home on their ranch. Asha is a Cheyenne woman who lives in the hills around Fortune's past with her band of more than 40 social outcasts. The primary antagonist is Seth Blackwell, who still harbors the hate of being abandoned as a child. He wants to prove that he can be a beneficent and doting father to spite his parents. His hate-twisted mind is guided by a voice in his head that helps him plan his next move. This voice told him to bring his family to Nevada, where he discovered demon hearts in Fortune's past. When the mines dry up, Blackwell kept hunting for the next big strike, but never found it. He blamed his wife and Ari for letting his kids die, and thereby ruining his plans. He killed his wife and tried to kill Ari. He is vowed to make Ari suffer. The voice in Blackwell's head is Daughters Matak, an archdemon that manipulates Blackwell so it can be the first archdemon to gain access to North America. By gaining a foothold in Nevada, it will open the continent to, for demonic forces, which will add to Daughters Matak's power and status in his quests to become the supreme demon overlord. The story. Marv and Ari buy a ranch in Fortune's past to start a new life and put their horror and loss behind them. Marv hires Frank to help on the ranch, and Ari begins to heal from her pain and loss through her friendship with Frank's wife, Jenny. The mines dry up, and Seth Blackwell prospects deep into the mountains over the same winter that a fever strikes town. Ari couldn't help the sick, and many of her new friends and their children died. She's tortured with guilt. Blackwell returns to find his kids died from the fever, and his plans are ruined. He kills his wife and tries to kill Ari. Marv stops him, and a knife fight ensues. Ari stops... <laughs> Ari stops Marv from killing Blackwell, who disappears into the hills. The voice of Darzmatak tells Blackwell if he sacrifices children to the Archdemon, his kids will be returned to life. Ari is deeply tormented and goes into the wilderness to reconnect with nature, where she meets Asha, who teaches Ari about the local plants and their medicinal uses. The population of Fortune's Pass has been decimated, and Marv becomes sheriff. Blackwell returns and begs forgiveness for his earlier rage. He asks Marv for permission to lead caravans across the mountains, utilizing his unparalleled knowledge of the terrain. Ari urges Marv to accept Blackwell's proposal, saying that if she can forgive the man who wanted to kill her, then she may be able to forgive herself. Marv reluctantly agrees, but with conditions. Blackwell sacrifices children from the caravan so the demon can manifest. The adults are transformed into the demon's minions, in the, and the hills echo with their howls as they hunt for human flesh. As Darzmatak approaches its final manifestation, it commands Blackwell to bring even more children, and Blackwell starts taking kids from town. While Ari is away, Marv kills some men who are breaking into their home, and recognizes one man as a former council colleague. The council has found them, and the bottom drops out of Marv's world. Ari knows there was trouble, but Marv won't tell her what happened. This is the first time Marv has kept something from Ari, and it greatly upsets her. Ari feels responsible for Marv's current attitude and behavior. Ari and Harriet, a young girl from one of Blackwell's caravans, meet and bond. Blackwell observes their interaction from across the river. 
The adults in the, that caravan are turned into howlers and all the kids are sacrificed except Harriet. She is tied up and left by the altar in a cave. Asha's Ben destroys a pair of howlers, but Ari feels absolutely helpless during the fight. This is Ari's darkest moment. She tells Marv there are demonic creatures in the hills that they must do something to protect the town. This is Ari's take charge moment. While Marv is investigating, Blackwell returns and tells Ari that Harriet is seriously hurt. Ari follows Blackwell, and when she sees Harriet tied up beside the gruesome altar, she channels Awen and launches a rock at Blackwell's head. Ari is not sure if he's dead or unconscious, but grabs Harriet and escapes back to the ranch to tell Marv. Marv prepares the ranch for battle, and Ari ensures that Jenny and Harriet are both safe before she rides into the hills. Blackwell regains consciousness and sees Harriet's gone. A fully materialized, horrifying archdemon emerges, emerges from a large cocoon near the altar. Darzmatak sends the Howlers to town. The archdemon and Blackwell follow behind. The Howlers arrive and a great battle ensues involving a Gatling gun, a punt gun, and exploding demon heartstones. Ari arrives with Asha and her band. Frank is dealt a mortal blow by the archdemon and falls to the ground dying. Ari stands by his body and uses Awen to summon a herd of stone elephants that crush Dyer's Matak into a jelly. Asha is killed by Blackwell while protecting Ari, and Asha's sacrifice gave Ari enough time to complete that channeling. Ari summons tree roots that tear Blackwell into sticky, wet pieces of meat. Ari holding Harriet tells Marv that she knows the fight in their house over the summer was with council agents, but she's not leaving Fortune's Pass. This is their home now, and she will fight to protect it. Bam! Nice. Well done, sir. Excellent pitch. Before we dive into this, what are you hoping to get out of the next half hour, 45 minutes of, of brainstorming? What are you hoping for? Well, I've got a couple of specific things. I'm wondering if I need to have more of my characters die because that always seems to be a good thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, this is the first thing I've written that hasn't been uh, a nighttime story for my young kids. So I'm just looking for really anything that, uh, that your great minds can throw my way. Ah, uh, well, I, I, I have no doubt there will be much goodness tossed your way uh, uh, and literary gold strewn about the virtual studio. So, good, excellent. Before we do that, though, we need to cover our ass. So, Master Stewart, would you be so kind as to, to offer up the patented roundtable podcast disclaimer, sir? It would be my absolute pleasure. <laughs> Robert, you are about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. It's something very important that you realize that this everything said from this point forward by myself, Dave, and David might be absolute bullshit. <laughs> this is your story, and you decide what to use and what to cast aside. Are you okay with that? I am hip to that funky jive, sir. Ooh, My he's hip God. to the fun. <laughs> and instantly, I think I'm, I'm ready for some polyester at this point. Awesome. <laughs> Very cool. Well, then we're covered. Let's dive into this. And we always start off with a quick once around the table uh, to give first impressions of, of Rob's story and ask any questions of clarification uh, that are rattling around in our brains. And we always start with our guest host. So, David Nickel, if you would be so kind, uh, uh, what are your first impressions of Rob's story and what any... What questions if any do you have for clarification okay well first off rob this is a this is a really cool world that you have built with some really interesting and intricate relationships both both with people and and metaphysically um i have i have a soft spot for for westerns um given given some of the stuff that I, i've written and re-watching deadwood over again <laughs> and um i think this can be a lot of fun um what i'm what i'm initially struck by is you've started this off with Ari placed as a protagonist for you. I think that that's, that's the person whose story that you want to tell. And you're telling a lot of stories here that, um, that aren't necessarily directly related to her, that she doesn't interact to. When you said that she had sort of a moment of uh, a moment where she takes power that happens fairly close to the end of the, of the, of the book. And, uh, I, I can't help but thinking that it might be, it might be something to think about to try and find ways to weave her, much more directly into uh, into the situation with Blackwell, uh, create a much clearer uh, protagonist antagonist relationship, um, and and with that uh, there are a couple, you you describe the thematic journey that she has to go to to forgiving herself, but there's another thing that you have to have with the protagonist, which is the journey that they want to be taking, the thing that they want to do, the thing that they that they see as their as their objectives goals or what we what we call motivation, and I think that. 
as we go on in this, I, I, one of the things that I hope that we can do is maybe hone that down a little bit and, uh, and also just weave her story much more closely in with, um, in, in with the business of, um, of, of black belt, of Blackwell and, and of Marv too. He's got some interesting problems. Yeah. Excellent. Outstanding. Yes. And, and definitely let's put a pin in that, uh, uh, and circle around to that almost immediately. Cause I, I, I agree we, that Ari needs, it needs, needs that attention, I think to, to, to tighten her up. What about you, Al? First impressions and any questions? Yeah. My first impression is this thing is incredibly well built. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's always, it, it's always really, really interesting to come on this show and listen to authors talk, talk about their work because you can always see which direction they approach from and you've built this thing from the ground up and it shows it's a really tight, really coherent world. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the one question I have with it, and this is almost certainly a misinterpretation on my part, uh, the demons are accepted everywhere outside the U S yeah. Right. Okay. Why is the stuff the miner's mine called Demon Heart? Well, it's been called a few things, and so it's up for grabs. Uh, from my thought on it is because I was looking at something like dragons or demons, because we have um, the heat generated inside, so again, reminiscent of hell, uh, fire, that type of idea. And then just as sort of a legend, again, like, you know, Again, I too have been watching uh, a lot of Deadwood, um, so you've got a lot of these old seasoned uh, miners. Again, there's sort of superstition around that um, that goes with that lifestyle. So that's kind of where I was coming with, like calling them demons' hearts. But again, that's completely up for grabs. So what what you've actually got is this very nuanced world where the official line is that this is nonsense, and the people who work with this stuff inevitably have their own collection of myths and, and superstitions about it, some of which are remarkably on the nose. Exactly. Brilliant. Also, you have warmed the black igneous cockles of my former geologist heart by coming <laughs> up with that stuff. Just... <laughs> yeah, very cool. Any, any questions, Al, or any, any clarifications other than that? No questions or clarifications other than that. I've got a couple okay. of ideas, but yeah. we'll get to them. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes, we will. Uh, uh, and for myself, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on board with that as well. Uh, I love the idea of a hollow earth peopled by evil spirits and that through the transition through the earth's crust, they, they somehow manifest as demons in our world. Um, I'm, I'm a little hazy on what the end game for the demon culture is. And this is the world builder in me. It's not a huge deal, but, but is, is the ultimate demon goal to basically, you know, break through the earth's crust and everybody manifest and basically make the earth uh, uh, a demon central is, is that their goal or is there, is there a higher metaphysics going on in terms of the demonic initiatives? Yeah, I haven't gone too deep into it. Um, my thought is that they're seeing the council as their chief enemies. Obviously, they're the ones that are destroying their physical presence in Europe, Africa, Asia. Um, North America, for a variety of reasons I'm still fleshing out, hasn't had that same sort of influx. Um, so they're looking at this as they can get one step ahead of the council. They can get in and then work their plans. So what exactly their end games are beyond the sort of demonic we destroy and take over everything lines uh, I haven't really thought through yet. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. And honestly, you know, the world builder in me wants to know what that reason is so that we can tie it into the story and, and expand it. But really, I think the story that you've created here would be a disservice to try and make it any bigger than it already is. You've got this wonderful intimacy with Ari and Marv and Blackwell and, and, and fortunes pass and, and having that story stay in there, you know, with, with nods to the council of the four pillars and there's demons out there and blah, blah, blah. But, but making this any bigger, let's, let's save that for book two. Uh, let's keep this thing nice and tight. Uh, uh, so, and I honestly, I have no questions either. Uh, uh, I just really am very much enamored as, as has been already articulated, uh, with the, the character backgrounds that you've wrought. These are interesting characters I want to know more about, uh, and an an interesting world that, uh, I'm looking forward to exploring. So let's, let's not dwaddle about that. Let's dive into it. Uh, uh, David, you had mentioned, uh, uh, the desire to, to explore Ari a little bit. And, and I, I think we're all in agreement that maybe a little more agency up front. I actually kind of postulate that the story was maybe starting too early uh, uh, and that starting later in the narrative might not be a bad idea. I don't know. But what what are your first thoughts? How do you want to pursue uh, uh, the amplification of Ari as a protagonist? Well, I think that uh, first off, it's it's good to not think of her as fundamentally simply healing from 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 the damage of, of the atrocity that she had uh, 
had committed. Um, she um, she seems to be very inward looking right now. Uh, so one thing to think about is as they have got this new ranch, this new this new start for for the two of them, uh, she might be trying to find just some some way to actively establish something, actively build something. Again, thinking back to Deadwood, uh, when uh, when when the new sheriff comes to town, uh, he is thinking, "I'm going to make myself a a hardware store," um, and and you root for that. You root for that very that very simple healing uh, healing activity, which is more than a healing activity; it's a building activity. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, that seeing her decide that she wants to decide that she wants to construct something uh, to 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 build a place for her, herself here in meaningful ways and be anxious about it and be not sure if she can pull it off and then have a, have a series of small successes. That's how you reveal a character that you can then root for when the stakes get really high. Sure. Well, um, and maybe, maybe, you know, given her, you know, the loss of her child and, and the, the, the crippling nature of the, maybe she's here to build a school. Maybe, maybe, she, and maybe, maybe the, the demon hearts have dried up and in a, in an effort to, um, revitalize the town maybe blackwell has put out you know the call that we're looking for a school marm to to build a school and that's what she wants to build or maybe maybe the opposite maybe he doesn't want that uh uh, because he doesn't care uh i'm not sure well i think that it's actually a really good idea to have her and blackwell engaged beginning uh the first scene in in this book because this is the relationship should be them encountering one another or having to, or it, it might well be them encountering one another and um, and establishing some kind of a business relationship and and something like starting up a school might be okay uh, um, given given that she's um, that 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 she also has these abilities and and Blackwell's interested in that uh, it might be a sense that he has uh, he has various things for a, uh, for a for a druid to do. And you don't know what they are, and he's mysterious, but he uh, he he expresses some even possibly has some knowledge about what, what might have happened before. Well, that's um, interesting. Now, Rob, just to clarify, does Seth know, does Blackwell know about Ari's powers? No. One of, one of the reasons why she wanted to move to Nevada is because there's a uh, theory anyways that North America doesn't have the same flow of Awin. So it's a place where she would have a difficult time channeling because she's in fear of her channeling ability and her ability to control it. So she's trying to put herself in an area where there's less Awin around for her to channel. So she's actually trying to repress that as much as she can. Okay. So... Yeah, so she's not making that known, even to her closest allies at this point. But David, I like your idea that maybe he does know about that. Yeah. That could make for a very different dynamic in their relationship. Yeah, I mean, what, one of the things that you can do with that also is is it, there, there, there's always a challenge in these things as to how to get, how to get that background information across. Uh, so if there is a conversation where he lets her know that you know, yeah, well, I. I I don't share this continent's disdain for the uh, for the reality of all in, and uh, I don't I don't share the closed mindedness of, of 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 the folks around here, and I understand from inquiries I've made that you've uh, you don't have that disdain either, do you, ma'am? Uh, and then suddenly there's tension. She thought she'd come in here uh, and and make a clean slate, and she won't quite be able to. But she doesn't know how much this cat knows. And then there's a there's sort of a going back going back to, to all things Deadwood. There's a swear engine moment, you know, where there's this this big player in town who might be an ally, might not be, uh, but certainly isn't going to let you get away with the uh, with the easy uh, easy coast to healing that you were hoping to have. Yeah. And then and then you got tension. Then you've got something that uh, that the that the reader at the end of the chapter you can say, "What's with this cat Blackwell?" Um, <laughs> well, and I like that because. Blackwell's got a demon riding him and it could be that the demon can sense that in her and expose that to, to, to Blackwell who would then, you know, work it into his machinations. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's a great mechanism. That's a perfect mechanism for it. Rather than him having some, some network of people, he can say he's got, Oh, a network. And then (laughs) the the thing that he can say is that the network isn't across the land so much as it is under it. Yes, indeed. Well, and, and I, I instantly got a, a a flash. I'm catching up on my arrow uh, episodes and I'm thinking of Damien dark and his little altar in his office. And I could totally see Blackwell having a little altar in his office as well. Uh, And that's, you can feel free to toss that aside, Rob. That might be total crap. Al, what about you? Yeah. Uh, what, what are you thinking as far as Ari and and amping her up as a protagonist? Um, in terms of of the stuff which jumps out at me, basically, I'm I'm absolutely in lockstep with the pair of you. I think she needs a little bit more agency. Yeah, 
And I, I think at the risk of sounding blunt, you need to be slightly less nice to her. Mm. Insofar mm. as an awful lot of an awful lot of the complications you've got land a little way in. And I think the points that David's already made about how you can ramp up the tension between her and Blackwell are a really, really solid foundation. Because what the the most interesting thing that you can do with her and with Marv, I think, is focusing on the fact that you have two people here who have ideological differences, who love one another, who are starting to forget how to communicate. And that's a tremendous personal stake for both of them. And there's lots of really, really interesting stuff that you can do by making that the constant undercurrent of tension. And you do that through ramping up the conflict with Blackwell. You do that through having her engage more specifically in a couple of different ways. And, and the, the two things which have really jumped out at me, uh, you mentioned that Marv is tending towards violence at this point. He's one of these people who will go out and, and kill a problem to death, and he doesn't really want to talk to her about that. Am I right? Yes. Okay. Had you considered the possibility of flipping the genders on them? Because the, the mild concern I have at the moment is that you have a female lead who is definitionally at present very not maternal but very nurturing and very caring and a male lead who is as you present him emotionally closed off and physical and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that especially in the genres that you're working with because i mean that's pretty much the default but there is a lot of interesting spice to be added to this by flipping the genders around or perhaps even flipping the characters around so you have a male druid yeah, because then if you bring in Blackwell, you have the potential for there to be a very kind of, for want of a better word, testosterone, which is, as we know, is the real San Francisco treat <laughs> clash between the these two guys. Or alternatively, you have the, the potentially very interesting thing of this woman who in particular in this kind of time period where certainly the accepted popular pop culture perception of it is that women are were at this point regarded as, you know, something pretty that you fought over. And she will go out and kill people to keep this guy safe. That's and that intriguing. Adds, and that adds another level of outsider status to these two, that they are new in town, they have a very unusual relationship, and they are both doing the thing you would expect the other one to be doing. Well, and the cool thing about that is then that with the child, if, if Ari is the demon hunter and the badass and the slayer, then her having that child is even more dramatic a transformation in her backstory that then creates this wonderful exploration of, of gender roles in the culture and, and the, the contrast of the slayer and the life giver. That's fascinating, Al. Rob, what do you think of that, man? Oh, I'm loving that. <laughs> cool. Something else that you can do with that, in addition to to, to simply swapping the the genders on this, is you can uh, swap the um, the journeys a little bit, so that um, so, so 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 that we start out with these various difficult stereotypical assumptions, and then the characters transform in different ways. So um, so that uh, that Ari actually learns that sometimes. Killing is not something that you feel guilty about at all. Sometimes it's a, a necessary thing to do, and when you come out of it, you actually can feel okay. And this can happen at the at the end with the with the Blackwell situation very well. And uh, in the same way, Marv can learn to to bring more nuance and more nurturing to his to his to himself, so that you don't you you, you don't have those gender cliches um, or, or tropes, I guess, that that carry all the way through. Yeah, yeah. But 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 you think very much that actually what you need, what 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 both these people need to do is learn to be more like each other, and then, and then themselves. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Uh, like, oh. like that. That's just another way to go. I think I think yeah. actually the gender swap is really cool too. But when we're writing, we don't necessarily always want to do one thing or another. That's just another another choice that occurred to me. So so moving forward, you know, I think we're all kind of down with this transposition of either gender or story or both. So, so moving forward, we'll, we'll talk about the nurturer and the slayer uh, as these, these characters, and, and we're moving forward. One question I had, Rob, was, was while the, the, the nurturer is you know, trying to build the school or doing what, what he she is doing in the storyline, what is the slayer doing? What job do they have? What are they pursuing 
as as a lifestyle or a career in this town while the other person has this very concerted and motivated uh, uh, intention. Right. So two things. One, they are on a ranch, so I had some ah. ranch-related work. But then also, uh, after the fever and the town has dried up, all the mines have dried up, and the town has been decimated, um, that person also becomes the sheriff. Right. Gotcha. Okay. And and the whole bringing in of Frank and and Jenny was as as ranch hands on their ranch. Right. I yes. I like that. I, I I think that works. One one thought that could throw a monkey wrench into all of it was uh, the presence of the demon hearts and their their critical nature in the end game uh, with with you know demon heart grenades going off. Boom boom boom. I'm I'm wondering if if the 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 Slayer. And I'm just going to put this out there as it doesn't work yet, and maybe it will. Maybe he's a miner in the mines. Because uh, uh, one thing that I think we need to do is we need to establish the demon hearts in context. We need to have a demon heart catastrophe of some kind so we can see the destructive nature of these things because they play you know, a fairly pivotal role in the end fight. What do you, what do you guys think about that? I think... This is one of those situations where, which, you know, Chekhov talked about, where if you are going to have a supernatural explosive, you blow up in the third act, you have to introduce it in the first. Right. So, yeah. And that's exactly uh, what I, Chekhov I, was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I would agree completely. I think you, the, the demon hearts offer you a very elegant solution because you can explore the technology and the differing approaches to what we know is one particular thing through that at the same time as ramping up the tension, and as Dave has talked about, potentially giving the Slayer a little bit of extra work to do. If this is a town which is defined by these things, then you need to explore them a couple of different ways. What if the, uh, these things were, um, were actually pretty rare in America and have been locally named as Red Coal? Because basically what their use is, as far as the population is concerned, is, is like a very high-powered energy source. And nice. then one of the things that the Slayer can do in the course of this is realize that this red coal that we thought that we, that we had is actually something I'm all too familiar with. That's brilliant. Yeah. And that's one of those jobs. He can just be ranching, right? And then say that, you know, he, he for whatever reason, comes across this stuff in market and realizes what it is and then starts you know, just asking around and taking a look and uh, uh, going and checking out the wine and, he, and maybe, maybe even signing on as a laborer. That's very to, cool. As a miner, just, just, just because he's, he knows what this shit is and it's his job to track it down. And he thought that things were clean here, but they're not. Yeah. And, and of yeah. course, as a slayer, the, the, the weaponization of something that no one had really conceived of weaponizing would, would be a natural innovation for them, a, a natural right. thought process. And I like that because, right. you know, the, the notion of, of a couple uh, who have been involved with demons, whose demons were involved with their child, moving to a place that mines demon hearts, uh, <laughs> that, that kind of raised a flag. of like, why would they go there? That just sounds like a constant picking at the wound and a reminder. But Red Coal kind of de-demonizes it and makes it a little more generic. And even, you know, during the course of the conversation, during the course of the story, you know, the, the Slayer could christen them demon hearts uh, especially if the mine shaft where they're being mined is also the same area where where Diz, Dizma Gurgagan, Dizma attack is is uh, is emerging because the demons do come up through holes in the ground right Rob yes that's right okay all right and were you going to say something earlier about the the demon hearts and the and the red coal yeah, no, what I was getting at was, um, again, the whole idea of the, in the end game of the battle, they get violently shattered open, which releases this big explosive force. And that's forecasted very early on um, where there was a mining accident and which led to the eventual downfall of the mines in the area. It was uh, such an explosive reaction that it wiped out the sort of deposit that they were being, that was being mined. Gotcha. Okay. Well, yeah, in a mining accident, that's cool. We can totally work with that. And that gives a, a catalyst then for for the Slayer to to contemplate the weaponization thereof. So I just I like the idea of of the Slayer having something constructive. You know, we, it's steampunk for all intents and purposes. So we need somebody in there tinkering and making shit. Because uh, <laughs> that's what happens in steampunk, damn it. So I, I like the direction this is going. I wanted to invoke uh, a separate thing here. Um, the character of Asha and her, her roving band of, of dudes and dudettes that are, you know, wandering the countryside doing things. 
it feels a little tacked on to me. Um, and I, I'm going to offer the possibility that we extract Asha as a character and maybe have her role filled by Jenny or, or someone else. What, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I agree. Uh, one of the things I found as you were pitching, I was sort of f- furiously typing to make because I realized that we were getting quite a, quite a complicated outline on, on this. Was that we were getting quite a complicated outline, uh, <laughs> and um, and that and that's that's not necessarily uh, that that's actually not a bad thing to have when you're starting a story and you're thinking here are all the places it could go and here here's this this vast world because it, it it's an imaginative aid to you, but it's not always necessary to to keep all of that stuff once it goes. And and a good thing in plotting and outlining is yeah try. And figure out how, how to combine characters uh, who are doing different things in the in the story into one character who is different doing different things. So um, I would be inclined to look at uh, look at bringing that together. I mean, the, the really interesting story here is Ari and Marvin Blackwell, and yeah. um, and even introducing the couple who are signing on as ranch hands. Uh, it, I'm I'm not I'm not sure that you're necessarily going to need that. People like that are great expositional devices. Because they can they, they they can learn things about the what the protagonist or the or, or the world in a way that um, in in a way that somebody somebody who's deeply involved can't uh, without without just blocks of, of straight exposition uh, <laughs> info dumps. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, the more we're talking about this, the more I'm realizing that this is a triangle story, and your major characters are um, are Ari and Marv and Blackwell. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree absolutely. Also, just to pick up on something really quick that, that Dave mentioned passing about half an hour ago, that there's some stuff you saved for the sequel. I do hope you're aware of that. This is a world which isn't done in one book. Everything you're talking to me about suggests that you're going to have enough offcuts from this and enough further consequences to explore this further down the line. Um, the other thing which which I, I wanted to, to bring up really quickly is, is a one of those ideas that sometimes worries me when I come up with them because it's disgusting. Um, <laughs> the virus that wipes out the kids. Uh oh. If you wanted to go very, very, very unpleasant, the virus is part of the demon's long game, and the corpses of people who died from it are what he assembled into his physical form. Oh, dude. That's yeah, that makes perfect sense because you know if if ultimately he needs Blackwell to you know do atrocious things, it makes sense that the demon would want his children to die in order to push Blackwell into the vulnerable position of being susceptible to his promise that uh, if you bring me back to the world, I will bring your children back. Ha ha ha! And having it be a demon plague also so is perfect because then Ari, who tries her damnedest and maybe even commits to her Arwen uh, uh, powers early, has no effect, and it and she thinks it's her fault, and it's not. It's because it's a demon plague that's unlocked and unleashed. And now we have a much larger army and you got that wonderful horror of, holy crap, that's Bob Fletcher, the guy that he's my best friend and he's coming at me with black eyes and he's going to eat my soul. And holy crap, that's awesome, Al. I like that. Rob, what do you think? Yeah, that's it's right in with how I had him, the demon materializing as well, where Blackwell sacrificing kids in the cave down into a fissure, which is actually all sort of merging into the physical presence. So that ties in exactly, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. right. That's perfect. Really? Yeah. David, what about really? you? Is that is that working for you? No, that that's great. Well, I was thinking, I, I was thinking of of, of 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 some lines of dialogue there where the demon can be saying, <laughs> you know, well, Blackwell, I've spent all this time making you into a beautiful brain." And now your children are going to be my arms. Yeah. Oh man! <laughs> oh, realizes that he's not only sacrificed his children, but he's made them into part of the monster that he is. Oh God, that's evil. That's evil. And Blackwell goes for it because he's so broken. No, I like that. I like that a lot. I think I think that's got that's got good story legs. So. Uh, Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the clock start to wind down a little bit where we need to start nudging ourselves toward that final wrap. But, but David, I want to ask you, is there anything else in this story that maybe is, is a, a rough edge that could be smoothed out or, or a plot element that you feel could be uh, refined in some way that will tighten the story even more than we already have? It, it is a pretty solid story. It's, it's got it really uh, is. a really engaging world. Um, the, uh, the challenge is going to be expositing that world. Uh, I think one of the things that, uh, that I do want to understand a little bit more is 
what it is about America that makes people incredulous about this. Uh, even um, uh, even though that people might be living on the cold on the cold North Atlantic, uh, they do understand that the Mediterranean's warmer. Yeah, uh, they do understand that that's real. So, what is it about America uh, that uh, that causes the population generally to be so much in denial of things that are that are very obviously going on uh, just uh, just a steamership away? Uh, that's and, a good question. Um, yeah, and it's not so much a flaw in the story, but it's an interesting question. It's an interesting bit of the world building. Like when as you're writing these characters from Europe interacting with Americans. You're going to want to kind of understand why it is, what, what it is culturally about them that, uh, that brings such skepticism, uh, yeah. particularly, you know, in, in, in a country that very early on went crazy over witches in Salem. Um, what, <laughs> Good point. What, what is it that makes them not uh, want to deny magic right now? Yeah. Uh, and I think that the other thing that it, it does need is when you have magical manifestations that the Americans have some mundane description for it. Sure. Uh, and probably a very uh, violent reaction to the incontrovertible proof that somebody's working magic before their eyes. Right. And I mean, and, and, and part of, part of that could be, uh, <laughs> could, could be a fundamentalist Protestant worldview that, um, that, that these things are kind of the devil's work and metaphysical and don't yeah. necessarily come about, but you have to think about that. I well, think. And, and Rob, do you have any, any thoughts along those lines as far as why North America is so isolated in terms of accepting this? Yeah, I thought, number one, there just isn't the same presence because of something that's taking place in the Earth's core. So it's either thicker or there's something like, say, iron or silver or whatever, some sort of physical barrier into North America from that side. So they're just not getting the firsthand experience. As far as what's happening in Europe and Asia and elsewhere, um, the council's been around for so long and are very effective at keeping a cap on this. Each generation sees less and less and less and it starts to come out where it's really not showing up in any of the major centers anymore. It's not in Rome. It's not in Paris. It's in some little town in the Black Forest and that just gets written off as superstition. So it's sort of at the downward cycle of the magical presence in the world. I can see that. And and here's a thought. And this is this is what I was talking about earlier about how, you know, in, in book one, probably not so much. But if you consider pursuing a book two, uh, uh, you're naturally going to have to expand beyond Fortune Pass in order to to expand that narrative and raise the stakes. So I'm wondering. And, and again, this is backstory. This maybe doesn't necessarily impinge on this particularly, but maybe. You know, I like what you were saying about how there's something in the crust like like iron or silver or something uh, uh, that's thwarting the demons. That's kind of cool. I wonder if we can bring in something that like maybe the early Vikings did uh, uh, or even maybe the Native Americans uh, uh, and bring in some kind of concept that North America or or most of North America somehow had, you know, I'm thinking like I'm going in digging into my supernatural roots right now and thinking of Dean, the Winchesters and so on. But what if there was like some sort of seal or thing, you know, maybe Solomon back in the ancient day came and marked this place as no demon shall trod the path of the, of the North America or something. And one of the, the big reasons why demons are always trying to get into America and can't is because this seal has been in place. This, this, this thing. And I might be making a MacGuffin. I have been known to do that. Uh, uh, but then it, if if uh, if Demazdertak <laughs> uh, uh, succeeds in manifesting that that seal is broken, and we can have this wonderful resolution, and here's the yay we won and the demon is dead, but then the epilogue is and deep in the earth's core, the cracking resonance of Desmacak's arrival shattered the ancient seal laid down by and and they were it was laid down by the Council of Four Pillars. They don't mess with America because they know they fixed it back in the day. Uh, it was their first uh, uh, big attempt to to eradicate demon kind. I don't know something like that. Well, what do you guys think? You could do that. I think that that I, like that that is a good MacGuffin in this kind of situation. Does does clarify things uh, and and also lets lets you have those wonderful end of book cliffhanger escalations of 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 stakes. So I think that's probably that probably is a good idea. I mean, my I have to admit that my my interest is at this point for this book is the way that American culture deals with mm. the likely presence of magic in the world and also the the sort of denial of it in, in within that culture. Right. Um, and it sounds and, like it could uh, be something like that's their problem. 
We don't have that problem because we're better. We're Americans. You know, people come up with their own mythology as to why it's not their problem, but it's simply not. And, and yeah. anything to the contrary is going to be greeted with, you know, anti-patriotism, anti-fundamentalism, all the anti-things that, that people get hung yeah. and strung up and burned for. Well, you, 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 you could have a, have a, a kind of supercharged manifest destiny myth. Right. That people are, people are living with that. We are America. We came here to get away from the grubby superstitions of the, um, uh, of, of, of the Europeans of the Africans and, and, and tie it to, uh, to basically kind of, kind of xenophobia that we, we've come here to this pure land that we've taken it, you know, completely, completely ignoring as, as Americans have, uh, the, uh, the people that we took it from. Yeah. You could even, you know, alter some of America's ancient backstory uh, uh it doesn't have to be the 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 mayflower people or maybe the mayflower people were much more militant and organized and an organization of the the council of four pillars and they came to america to create a sanctuary and then something happened politically or whatever that caused them to you know lose control of this grand experiment uh, uh and yeah. they've kind of abandoned it and and now these americans come in and they claim it for their own that's not a bad idea. That's not a, because there, there's there, there 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 is some commonality with, between Puritanism and and the sort of mundane aesthetic that uh, that, that that you have the Americans in uh, in this story taking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that could work. You, 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 you have to think about the alternate history, though. You have to be careful about that too, because <laughs> uh, because there there is a lot of politics tied up in that. You just have to know what you're doing. Right. Something you should. But you have to know what you're doing. Yeah. Cause so and effect. Bit, all of that. Yeah. Awesome. Rob, what do you think of that? Is that something that fits into your perspective of things? Yeah, yeah. I knew that that was something that I had to work with. I had a few minor ideas with it, but clearly it's something that I, I really need to to investigate and flesh out a lot more. So, yeah. No, cool. I like, and I like the ideas, yeah. Awesome. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and then roll into the final stage of, of the brainstorm, uh, which is the one last time around the table. Let's 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 take one stop at, at David, Allen, myself and, and give give Rob some thoughts, some last impressions, some ideas you didn't get a chance to put out in the brainstorm or whatever. Fill, fill his pockets with literary gold and some last advice so he can go off and write this thing. Uh, Master Nickel, we'll start with you, sir. Final thoughts for Rob. Well, I think to synthesize what we've been talking about, what what you really need to do is think about your three the, the, the about the triangle of conflict and uh, and aspiration and everything in this. So everything that you uh, that you do when you are plotting this thing, including the world building, think about how did how does that relate to Ari? How does that relate relate to Ari and Marv? Uh, how does that relate to, to to Blackwell? How does that relate to Blackwell and Ari? All the relationships are uh, are important things to think about. And as you're crafting scenes, think about that. Uh, any scene should uh, should should somehow build or resonate on that, even even if they don't seem immediately to be uh, to be about that triangle. Uh, that's that's how that's how this thing will cohere, and I think it can cohere into something pretty spectacular. So, um, yes. I, I take my advice on that one. <laughs> that's excellent, <laughs> excellent advice. Very cool, and I couldn't agree more. Al, what about you, sir? Final thoughts for Master Rob. My final thoughts are really this. You have an incredibly nuanced, obviously extremely well thought out world here. And the issue I think you have is, is a, arguably a pretty envious one. It's not that your story doesn't work. It's that it works fine and you just need to fine tune it and take a couple of things out. Yeah. And that's always much easier than putting stuff in. I'm really excited to see what you're going to do with that. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for myself, Rob, I, I find myself kind of at a loss for for one of the first times in in roundtable history, uh, uh, and and I, I hate to parrot all of the sound advice that has been given, uh, uh, but honestly, I, I cannot do anything else. You have brought such a, a, a rich and well wrought story. Not that there isn't an opportunity to refine and tighten and align and gender flip and all the wonderful things that happens during the roundtable, uh, uh, but. Really, those relationships that that, that David invoked uh, uh, and and Al uh, echoed uh, that really is the essence of this. And and finding finding the parallels and the the what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's the the points where they overlap. When in in the Venn diagram of of desire. Uh, uh, finding out where they connect. The, the, the antithesis and the contrast is vitally important, but as, as David pointed out, finding where they connect and where you can sympathize 
with Blackwell and and finding out where God, if if things just played a different way, uh, Blackwell, Marvin, Ari could be allies somehow or whatever. Uh, really humanizing and and embracing a full spectrum of of character and and insight and experience. I think as has been pointed out, it's really just going to cohese this into an epic, epic tale. Oh, man, that is awesome. So, so Rob, you know the rules here at the round table. You write this bad boy, and oh, dear sir, please do. Uh, and you write this, you, you get it edited, make sure that you get it edited, and then you release it out into the world, whether it's a, a PDF on your website or, or a deal with a, a, a big publishing company or anything in between as long as it's out there in the world seeding imaginations with your unique vision you let us know and we will bring you back and we will knight you we will make you a knights of the round table podcast and we'll hold it in constantinople because that'll just be badass (laughs) you're down with that sir absolutely looking forward to it outstanding very cool well rob Dude, this has been exceptional. You brought an incredible feast for the brainstorm and and a truly exceptional story framework and some really cool food that launched us into a, a fabulous brainstorm. I'm so very grateful. Thank you for your time, man. Thank you. And I'll tell you, it's as strong as it is is because I've listened to every episode of your podcast. <laughs> I've taken the tidbits out of each one and applied it back into this. I've listened to each of the episodes at least three times, which is no mean feat. No. And it is as strong as it is because of the show that you're doing. Thank you, Dave. Dude, you touch my heart, man. Thank you. That's awesome. God, we're actually doing good out in the world. That's mm, that makes me feel awesome. Uh, uh, and another thing that makes me feel awesome is is the, the the validation of my choice early in this podcast to bring on veteran authors, experienced and seasoned storytellers to to lead the discussion and and inform it. And David Nickel, you have fulfilled that role in spades, man. I cannot thank you enough for bringing your insights and inspirations into this conversation. It's been a blast, sir. It absolutely has. Th- thank you very much for having me on this. It was a ball. And, um, and Rob, thank thank you for sharing the story. Yes. Uh, and I, I echo, please, please go go sit down and start writing now. <laughs> yes, indeed. There you go. You've been, you've been admonished, Rob. You must do this thing now. <laughs> and he's Canadian. He can track me down. That's right. Oh, that's know. right. There's, there's no visas involved with the stalking of you. So yeah, he can badger you all the hell. <laughs> Alistair Stewart, my brother from another mother, the man of words, this has been a delight, sir. Thank you so much for sitting in the co-host chair here in the virtual studio. And dude, I I can't wait till we do this again. Thank you so much. Me neither. This is always so much fun, Dave. It's a pleasure to be on the show. (laughs) You're a gentleman, sir. Thank you. And as long as we're doling out gratitude, dear friends, thank you for tuning in, for hitting that play button. Without you connecting with us, we are but a bunch of chaps on a Skype line talking about story, which is fun and certainly very productive. But we share these things so that you guys can tune in and listen and have your brain infected by the gloriosity and the inspiration and the ideas that are bandied about during these frothing brainstorms. So if you're feeling the love, if your brain is on fire and fuego, uh, uh, then feel free to pay it forward and, and blog about us. Let people know about the roundtable. Share a Facebook post or a tweet. Spread the word so that the 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 roundtable vibe permeates all corners of writerdom. So, God, man, this is always such a... The temperature in the room has gone up about five degrees. I'm a little perspirational, and I'm going to light the celebratory cigarette at this point. But the amazing thing about the roundtable is that In seven days, like a phoenix from the ashes, we rise again. Another guest host, bringing their wisdom and insight and pouring it into our ears. Another courageous guest writer, giving us a story to to catalyze into an amazing brainstorm. More roundtable goodness to be had by all. And I know it's seven days and that's a long damn time. Al, what can our listeners do between now and seven days from now to make that time just fly by? Something challenging. Pick the genre that you dislike the most and write something in it. doesn't have to be long, you know, 100 words of drabble, something like that. But challenge your boundaries, challenge the areas you don't like working in and be surprised when you maybe have a little bit more fun than you're expecting. 
<laughs> that is excellent advice. Yes, push out outside of your comfort zones. Comfort zones are not necessarily a good thing as a writer. I couldn't agree more. And I will tell you, as I always do, dear friends, you find what you're looking for. So look for that top shelf blue label goodness. Look for that Christmas present at the back of the Christmas tree because, you know, the timing for that is spot on. There's going to be a present that you overlooked. Look for that bad boy. And if you look for those things and those wonders in your life, I promise you, you will find them. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David Labroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.